In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Three in One, who gives us something to hope in, and someone who comes to us. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, today is the third day of Christmas. That's uh, three French hens, if you're counting along according to the song. And uh, today is, is still within the celebration of Christmas. I, I mentioned on Christmas Eve that the celebration of, of Christmas, in the, at least the liturgical celebration, goes on for 12 days. And today is the third of those days. And uh, that, that old song that the three French hens comes from and the five gold rings just simply sort of counts down until this time that's called Epiphany, this celebration where we celebrate what it is to know who Jesus is. That when Jesus comes, that we begin to see kind of growing and growing glimpses of what it means for us to have a Savior, what it means for us to have God come into our lives as a human being. And today starts off with this sort of seemingly obtuse reading from Exodus, where all of a sudden we have Moses speaking to the people of Israel and telling them a command from God that they should make a sacrifice for the firstborn in their flocks and in their families. And if they don't make that sacrifice, what happens to the firstborn? Well, you're supposed to break its neck. Oh, goody. Nothing says Christmas like breaking somebody's neck. And, and, and so we, we kind of walk into this and we go, okay, where is that going? And then we find out. And we find out in the gospel reading that where this is, is all headed is that this is exactly what Mary and Joseph are doing. That Mary and Joseph, as good practitioners of Jewish religion, have come to the time of Mary's purification, which is approximately eight days after Jesus has been born, and they are going to go and make this sacrifice. And the sacrifice is supposed to point out to all of the Hebrew people, all of God's people, is supposed to be something that points back to God's rescue in the Passover. Is supposed to be something that points back and reminds the people of Israel, well, this is what God has done in order to rescue you. And so when Mary and Joseph go and they sacrifice these two young turtle doves, it is supposed to bring up in their head a memory that long, long ago there was a time when God came through the nation of Egypt and all of the firstborn that were not consecrated, all of the firstborn that were not behind a doorway that was painted with blood, all of them perished. And it was supposed to remind them that they were a people that were saved by God, that they were a people who had a hope in them. Because they knew that their lives had been redeemed, literally, that their lives had been paid for by a lamb 
who died so that its blood could be painted upon those doorposts. And so you have this sort of understanding of the story that Mary and Joseph are going into the temple with their eight-day-old baby boy. And they are going in there in order to make this sacrifice. And interestingly, there really is no alternative to, well, if you don't want to make the sacrifice, except for breaking the neck. Which is probably a good thing. There's no, well, if you don't make this sacrifice, then you can just give your kid to the next available person, being Simeon or Anna, probably in our story. There's none of that, which is probably good, because uh, having an eight-day-old at that point, you're maybe kind of ready to give the baby to somebody like Simeon or Anna. But they go and, and they make this sacrifice, and they go in and they give this child over to God. They, they literally buy their child back from God. Which is kind of interesting probably for Joseph and Mary, knowing what they know about this child that they have. You see, most people when they're going in and they're making the sacrifice, they are understanding it in a certain way. They're understanding, okay, this child is biologically ours. This child is biologically the product of, well, the father and the mother. And yet, legally, according to the word of God, because it is the firstborn child, they still do not have legal ownership of this child until they go to the temple and they buy it back from God. And and so you have this kind of interesting thing happening, probably especially with Joseph, when Joseph is thinking to himself, well, I am buying back this child that is not actually biologically mine. This child is biologically Mary's, but at this point, Jesus actually becomes, although not biologically Joseph's, legally Joseph's. That what happens here is that God has so orchestrated the life of his son, that not only does he come into this world in order to become a human being biologically through Mary, but that this child now comes into the world and becomes also legally a part of our human race through this sacrifice enacted by Joseph and Mary. And so we can kind of legitimately say that Jesus is Joseph's son. It's sort of an adoption signing, if you will. That what God is doing is giving his only begotten son and allowing him to be purchased for the price of two turtle doves, not three French hens, two turtle doves, purchased so that Jesus becomes, in yet another way, fully human. Or at least that we recognize his 
full humanity. That his full humanity here is not only according to the biology of Mary, but it is also according to the legal construct of the day. Which kind of sort of, in an odd way, reminds me of a British mystery writer. There is really no way to do that segue. But it does remind me of this British mystery writer, this British mystery writer named Dorothy L. Sayers. And Dorothy L. Sayers was uh, an early uh, mystery writer, actually one of uh, Britain's first mystery writers, a a very prolific writer at that, uh, one of the first female mystery writers anywhere, and also one of the very first graduates of Oxford University over there in England, and uh, she she spent a lot of time writing. She spent a lot of time doing things. She didn't spend a whole lot of time socializing. She wasn't a part of the of the, the social world of her day. Instead, she in instead she went and she wrote and she wrote and she wrote and she kept odd hours. and uh, And people said, well, she really wasn't even kind of that good looking, and so she looked kind of homely. And so because of that. Dorothy L. Sayers ended up being what they would call at the time a spinster, somebody who was a single female who was living on her own and, and perfectly happy with that. And she would just go home at night and she would pen these mystery novels. And she, in all of her mystery novels, she had this one character, this Lord Peter Wimsley. And Lord Peter Wimsley, he, he was this dashing character. He had been a spy in World War One, and now he was back in Britain, and he was using his skills that he learned as a spy in order to solve mysteries all throughout London. And so each one of the books was this kind of uh, story that was told about this dashing man who really you, you kind of fell in love with. Well, and and certainly, Dorothy L. Sayers kind of sort of fell in love with. And and we find that out in one of her books, one of her books called A Strange Poison, in which there is a woman that appears, and she is there in the courtroom. That's where uh, Lord Peter finally meets her, and uh, meets her, and and, uh, this woman is... Well, she's a writer of mystery novels. She's one of the very first graduates of Oxford. And she is described as being kind of homely. And yet there's something about her that Lord Peter Wimsley cannot resist. And eventually, in the later book, they get married after this long kind of courtship. And what you recognize about what's happening here is that Dorothy L. Sayers writes herself into the story of her creation of Lord Peter Wimsley. Well, in a lot of ways, that's our story. You see, we, we're characters, we're creatures. And even though we have our own free will, when it comes to 
looking at us versus God, we are dramatically different. Because he is a creator and we are simply creatures. The difference between us, you can probably think about it this way, is if you walk outside today and you look at the sun. Don't go out and look at the sun. It's a bad idea. Here's why. First of all, you will probably have little spots in your eyes that will last forever. The the second thing is that you won't actually be able to view the sun unless you have a filter. What you'll just see is all of this super brightness in your face. But you won't be able to see the beauty of the sun. You won't be able to see kind of the eruptions that are happening on its surface. You won't be able to see the way it shifts and moves. Won't be able to see any of that because it's just going to be too much for you. And so what you need is a medium. You need something of a filter. You need a a video shot of what the sun looks like. Or you need a picture or you need something else in order to really grasp the magnitude of the sun. Well, that's what it's like for us when we look at ourselves in terms of the difference between us and the creator is that we, we need something of a filter. We just can't handle it on our own. And God knew that. And so what God did, much like Dorothy L. Sayers, is God wrote a character into our story. And that character that he wrote into our story was this little boy. Jesus Christ. And as any good writer will tell you, one of the things that you have to do when you're writing a character into this into a story is that you have to understand the rules of the story. You have to understand the way in which that universe works. And so if there are lightsabers in your story, your character has to be able to figure out how you work through lightsabers. Well, when God is writing Jesus into our story, the very human story that he has created from the very beginning, that includes things like the Passover, that he writes that into Jesus' story, that Jesus comes into our world by fulfilling all of the legal requirements necessary. And... The theological concept here is something called incarnation. That God, who is so great and so powerful and so holy and so without sin, who is like looking at the sun, comes and lives among us so that he might love us. And yet there is more to the story here than what Dorothy L. Sayers could ever do. Because the thing that Dorothy L. Sayers could never do in her writing of the romance between herself and Lord Peter Wimsley is that she could never make Lord Peter Wimsley appear in her world so that they could get married in her world. She had to keep that in the world of her novels. And yet what God does through Jesus' story is he writes Jesus into our story. A Jesus who fulfills all of the rules of our world. 
who fulfills all of the rules of our universe, a, a universe that we break the rules in time and time again when we sin. But he goes into that world and he fulfills it completely. So completely, in fact, that through his death and his resurrection, we are then promised that we will be born into his world as he was born into ours. And that is why Simeon sings. And that is why Anna can't seem to stop telling anybody about what is going on here because this is so much bigger than just a child of God being written into our story. But rather, this is us being written into God's. Amen.